0: In the latter half of 1875, Tom Jeffords, then still agent of the soon to be abolished Chiricahua Reservation, entertained a request to come onto agency land. This request was made by a white man, but was unlike the vast majority of others that agents had and would receive. This particular American didn't want to cross the reservation in order to carve out some mining district for himself nor was he looking to plot a road, railroad track, or mail service through the Apache Territory. Instead, he had come to preach to the Apache. This was none other than someone we've already met, Daniel W. Jones, who in coming years would help found Mormon settlements in the Salt River Valley. But right now, he hoped to evangelize to the Cherikawa under Jefford's stewardship. Jeffords was not that enthused about the idea, but Jones had a letter of introduction from Governor Anson PK Safford, and the embattled agent could not very well afford to make an enemy of the governor, though we know that he managed to do that anyway. So Jones got his chance to preach the Apache, though it seems to have had little lasting impact and he moved on to greener pastures, both literally and metaphorically. But the appearance of this Mormon missionary is indicative of something happening all across the state at the time. Not only was the Utah-based church sending out preachers, they were also sending out colonizers. And, at least on paper, Arizona looked as good a spot as any to build a little bit more of the kingdom of heaven. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 79, The Buckskin Apostle. Welcome back, everyone. I would like to start today by once again begging your pardon for essentially skipping out on getting an episode to you last week. Turns out that Thanksgiving and all the accompanying travel and family celebrations took a much larger chunk out of my time than I anticipated, followed by some looming deadlines at my actual day job. A special thank you to all of those who responded to my post on Facebook and Twitter to forgive my dereliction of duty, at least this once. Also, I guess this is a great time to plug that, yes, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Come find me under the handle of at azhistorypod. Let's talk some history together. But I'm back now, at least for, you know, a couple weeks before we get into all the fun that is Christmas and New Year's, so let's catch up. When we last left off, we had watched settlements flourish in the Salt River Valley, named Phoenix, Tempe, and of course, Mesa, the latter of which was founded by the Mormons. But before we get too far into that, I do need to stop and make one little correction. I mentioned last time how some of the settlers of Lehigh weren't on board with Jones' very welcoming views toward the Amerindians and had decamped from the burgeoning settlement and had continued south toward Mexico. Well, the source I was reading at the time got this detail wrong, and I found it corrected in a couple of other places. It turns out this group did head south, but did not continue into Mexico. They, in fact, set up shop along current State Route 80 at the settlement they called St. David. One of the founders of the community had actually served in the Mormon battalion, see back in episode 21, so he was familiar with the area near the San Pedro River. Also, just in case you were wondering, the community takes its name from David W. Patton, who was an early Mormon apostle and was killed during hostilities in Missouri in the late 1830s. Okay, with that out of the way, let's zoom out again and begin our tale in earnest. As I mentioned last time, the church was ever exploring and setting up new colonies across the Great Basin, with its second president, Brigham Young, in particular interested in seeing as many successful colonies as possible pop up. In fact, you can thank the existence of some small podunk towns such as San Bernardino, California and Las Vegas, Nevada, not to mention pretty much everywhere in Utah and Idaho, to the continual waves of members being sent further and further afield. The first forays of the church into Arizona happened in the late 1850s, when a small group of missionaries were sent to the Hopis in northeastern Arizona. This was, of course, to preach what the Mormons believed was the word of God to the Amerindians, making them sort of the second coming of Father Garcés and the Catholic Franciscans. However, there was something of a secondary reason that early state historian James H. McClintock passes along that I could not pass up. You see, it appears that Brigham Young had heard that the Hopi language was suspiciously similar to Welsh, and that they might, in fact, be a remnant of a group of Welshmen who had left their home countries in ages past and had set up shop in the American Southwest. So this first group of missionaries actually contained a Welsh convert to the church who was sent along to confirm these rumors and, if true, interpret the gospel for his long-lost countrymen. We today know, of course, this is a fanciful story with no basis in reality, something that this group realized after actually speaking with the Hopis for something like 20 minutes. The good news is, these missionaries were treated much better than poor Father Garces was, and part of their group was left with the Hopis while the remainder returned to Utah. However, those who stayed would eventually be asked to leave because, as I feel we pointed out again and again on this podcast, the Hopis had their own faith and they were not really interested in adopting a new one. I want to note just two things from this early expedition. The first is that the group probably used the crossing of the Fathers, which I mentioned way back in episode 11 as the place where the friars Dominguez and Escalante had crossed the Colorado River after returning from their trip into Colorado and Utah about a century beforehand. The spot, which was chiseled into rocks around Glen Canyon, now sits below the waters of Lake Powell. The second thing I want to mention is is that this group was led by a remarkable explorer, missionary, and pioneer by the name of Jacob Hamlin. Jacob Hamlin really is at the heart of most of the Mormon forays into northern Arizona, so we need to spend some time properly introducing him. Born in Salem, Ohio in 1819, Hamlin converted to the Mormon Church in 1842 at the age of 22 and relocated to the growing city of Nauvoo, Illinois. After the church fled from Illinois following the death of Joseph Smith a couple years later, he settled in Tooele, Utah, which is situated to the west of Salt Lake on the far side of the Ochre Mountains. It's during this time that Hamlin would have a religious experience that affected him profoundly. He would often talk about how in 1853, he had the chance to shoot an Amerindian, but his gun misfired. According to Hamlin, this was one of the greatest blessings of his life, and he claimed to have had a strong impression from God that if he never thirsted for Amerindian blood, he would never be killed by them. From then on, he went out of his way to learn native languages and to be as honest, forthright, and fearless around them as possible. And this attitude would earn him a lot of cachet, especially with the natives he proselytized to, but also from other Americans he encountered while either simply exploring or acting as a guide across Arizona, southern Utah, and California. Hamlin was living in southern Utah in the late 1850s, but was in Salt Lake during the infamous Mountain Meadows Massacre. I mentioned this incident before in passing in episode 39 as part of the reason that soon-to-be General Carleton had headed west and intimated that it would become a large part of our story going forward, and it will, just a little later in the episode. I just want to mention that Hamlin was not in southern Utah at the time and would testify as to Brigham Young's and other church leaders' innocence in the entire affair. It was after this notorious event that I swear we're going to talk about that Hamlin would lead his missionary group to the Hopis. He would return again in 1859 and the following year, though his group was largely rebuffed by the Hopis and had very hostile run ins with the Navajos. The latter even killed a member of Hamlin's expedition in retaliation for three deaths the Navajos had experienced at the hands of white men. And then the hostile natives went on to say that they needed two more men to kill, and they would consider the whole matter settled. As you can imagine, Hamlin did not agree to those terms whatsoever, but was still able to extricate his group from this precarious situation. Of course, you don't earn a reputation to be mentioned on a podcast like Hamlin does by only making three trips. As McClintock writes, quote, Hamlin had about as many trips as Sinbad the Sailor, and about as many adventures. Quote. In 1862, again at the behest of Young, he led another expedition to the Hopis, but along the way tried to find a suitable crossing of the Colorado south of St. George, Utah. A really good fording spot was never actually found. But Hamlin and his company would manage to eventually reach the San Francisco peaks before heading across the little Colorado to the Hopis once again. On this trip, he managed to induce three Hopi leaders to come back to Salt Lake with him, much like the pilgrimage that all Apache leaders were asked to make to Washington, D.C. And then, of course, he had to bring them back. During the course of this round trip, he would go around the Grand Canyon himself and even met the Havasupai deep down at the bottom with their waterfalls of blue water. And though success among the Hopis would always be limited, they were not the greatest issue for Hamlin and the other hard Scrabble missionaries who kept heading toward their mesas. No, for them, it was always the Navajo who kind of played the part of the Apache in this story always vacillating between friend and foe and seemingly always willing to make peace and then take your horse if given half the chance. Three men were killed by Navajo near Mount Trumbull, which is by the north rim of the Grand Canyon southwest of Kanab, Utah, and nearly directly south of modern Colorado City. So Hamlin volunteered to parlay with the tribe to see if he couldn't prevent future bloodshed. And it's around this time that Hamlin would become acquainted with the famous geologist John Wesley Powell, who was then exploring and mapping the Green and Colorado rivers, including through the Grand Canyon. Powell, who had lost his right arm during the Civil War, would later go on to become the second director of the U.S. Geological Survey, and I have been trying to find a way to shoehorn him into the narrative, so this will have to suffice. In 1870, ahead of his second trip down the Colorado River and Grand Canyon, Powell employed Hamlin to help negotiate with the Navajo and Hopi to ensure that his party could pass in peace. From Powell, we get a description of Hamlin that reads, quote, This man, Hamlin, speaks their language well and has a great influence over all the Indians in the region round about. He is a silent, reserved man, and when he speaks, it is in a slow, quiet way that inspires great awe. End quote. In the late fall of 1870, Hamlin was with Powell at Fort Defiance, both to smooth things over for the geologist, but also to see if he couldn't broker a more lasting peace. Though it was just another round of peace talks in a never-ending series of soon-to-be-broken promises on both sides, as a result of these negotiations, the Navajo did agree to stay to the south side of the Little Colorado River and not cross northward except in very rare circumstances. Coming home from this trip, Hamlin brought with him a minor Hopi leader by the name of Tuve. They managed to build such a rapport that Tuve welcomed future Mormon settlements near the Hopi dwelling at Oribe, on top of the Third Mesa. This place, called Moenkopi, would not last as a white settlement, but the good deed would not go unnoticed. You see, in the 1870s, a supply station started roughly two miles north of Moenkopi. When it became time to name the settlement, Mormon apostle Erastus Snow would name it after the friendly chief Tuba. Of course, 19th century Americans being notoriously bad at pronouncing native names, we know this place today by the corrupted name of Tuba City. As a personal aside, I do recall driving past the turnoff for Tuba City along US-89 for years and wondering why anyone would name a town in the high desert after a giant brass instrument. Well... Now we know. So this is just a small sampling of Hamblin's travels and expeditions during the 1850s, 60s, and heading into the 1870s. And it's through the course of all these travels and interactions with the natives that Hamlin received several honorifics, including Leather Stockings of the West and The Buckskin Apostle. The latter title is very flattering, but unfortunately a bit inaccurate as Hamlin never was actually ordained an apostle in the Mormon church. But though he never got the official ecclesiastic title, he does have a small nod in Arizona if you know where to look. The tiny community of Jacob Lake, sitting at the junction of US 89A and State Route 67 north of the Grand Canyon, is named in his honor. But while I could go on about Hamlin, I mean he's not dead yet, he wasn't the only one settling in northern Arizona at the time. Throughout the 1860s, Mormon settlements were creeping down from Utah, mainly along the Virgin River and Colorado River watersheds in northeastern Arizona. According to McClintock, the Virgin River wasn't exactly the best place for agriculture as a lot of it flows through steep canyon walls as anyone who has driven Interstate 15 through the Virgin River Gorge knows. However, a clear tributary, erroneously called the Muddy River, was a way more suitable place for the agriculture-based settlements Mormons usually went in for. One of the first colonies was in 1865 at a place called Beaver Dam on the north side of the Virgin River. However, trouble with the eponymous beavers constantly blocking irrigation ditches, combined with flooding on the Virgin itself, doomed this community. A decade later, however, more settlers tried their hand, and the result is the community of Littlefield still in existence today. We find other communities called St. Thomas, St. Joseph, Overton, and Colville popping up in that region with Colville, and later St. Thomas, being named the county seat of Paiute County when it was split off from Mojave County in 1865. Of course, you will remember from episode 55 that the Paiute County was not long for Arizona and was soon given, over much protest, to Nevada the following year. Ironically enough, when Paiute was given to Nevada forming what is today Clark County, the county seat was moved over to another sleepy Mormon agricultural settlement that it had established in 1855 that I'm sure you've never heard of. It was called, uh, let me check my notes, Las Vegas. We continue to find post offices established at St. Thomas, St. Joseph, and Overton into the 1870s, but eventually these towns slowly disappeared. And today, the former sites of both Colville and St. Thomas sit below the waters of Lake Mead. Now, if we jump just a little bit to the east, we find the settlement of Pipe Springs, which existed just 8 miles south of the Utah state line, west of Fredonia. As it had a perennial source of water, it was a highly desired area to settle, which a rancher was doing in 1863. This rancher would end up being killed during hostilities with the Amerindians, and the church bought up the claim for the ranch. McClintock tells us that in 1871, a telegraph line was extended from Kanab to Rockville. However, while both of these points are in Utah, the lines themselves were directed southward to go around some difficult terrain, so Pipe Springs became a telegraph station. This means, according to the historian at least, The Mormon settlement at Pipe Springs holds the honor of having the first telegraph line in the state of Arizona, seeing as that the military telegraph line between Fort Yuma, Maricopa Wells, Phoenix, Prescott, and Tucson was not established until a couple years later in 1873. So, good job, Pipe Springs. From McClintock, we also learned the little interesting detail that for years, Utah tried to secure the land in Arizona lying north of the Colorado River with the very understandable claim that both geographically and economically, it was really more connected to Utah than the rest of Arizona. As recompense, they offered to give Arizona all the land south of the San Juan River, which runs through southern Utah roughly in an arc between the Colorado state line and the current site of Page. What appeals to me personally about this deal is that it means Arizona would have had an all-natural northern boundary defined by rivers instead of a random point of degrees and minutes latitude. However, the Arizona territorial legislature only reacted with hostility toward this offer, which was quite understandable when you consider that Nevada had somehow managed to take a whole county away from them. But also, the legislature wanted to keep the whole of the Grand Canyon in the territory. The pride of having this world marvel in their backyard is also seen in the fact that they made sure to call it the Grand Canyon of Arizona, so no one would mistake it for being in Colorado because of the name of the river. Now, speaking of the Colorado, like any great exploration of northern Arizona if we've covered so far, a major handicap was trying to get across that great river. The Crossing of the Fathers also known as the Ute Ford, was a difficult and steep trail that was entirely unsuited for wagons, so another means of crossing had to be found. So we must turn yet again to Jacob Hamlin for a better solution. During a trip in 1860, Hamlin built a raft and tried crossing the Colorado at the spot where the Pariah River empties into it, roughly 35 miles down from the crossing of the Fathers in Glen Canyon. His rafting expedition didn't go so well, and he was eventually forced to go back up to Ute Ford, but four years later, he managed to successfully cross at that spot. A year later, a Mormon colony was apparently started near the spot, and the first of Powell's expeditions down the Colorado in 1869 stopped briefly in the area as well. It's said that Brigham Young himself visited the Pariah River in 1870 as part of a wider visit to southern Utah. By the time Hamlin was helping the second Powell Expedition in 1871, so seven years after having first successfully crossed the Colorado at the mouth of the Pariah River, a regular ferry service had been established at the spot. Which can only mean it's time to talk about the name we know it as today, Lee's Ferry, and grapple with the legacy of John D. Lee. Okay, John Doyle Lee was born in Illinois in 1819 and joined the Mormon Church in 1838. He knew Joseph Smith and Brigham Young personally and was involved in the conflicts that eventually saw the church flee from the state of Missouri to Illinois. Like many, he again followed the church after it fled from Illinois to the Great Basin and was active in territorial politics and setting up new colonies. By 1872, he had been sent to the crossing of the Colorado to run the ferry operation there. The original raft was replaced by a boat given to Lee by Powell, who apparently just had one to spare, but it would eventually be replaced by a proper ferry boat as the operation ramped up. Lee would call the place where he settled Lonely Dell, which was fitting given that it was at the bottom of a canyon with no real communities around it. But the name that came to be attached to it was Lee's Ferry, which is actually kind of funny because Lee wasn't actually there for that long. In fact, he went to southern Utah for more provisions in the fall of 1874, so roughly two and a half years after starting the ferry operation, which is when he was arrested by U.S. Marshals. Now, to understand why exactly that happened, we need to cover a bit of Lee's CV that I purposely left out just a second ago. Also, as promised, it's time to talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Okay, so the Reader's Digest version of the Mountain Meadows Massacre goes something like this. In 1857, upon hearing not very accurate reports that the Mormons in Utah were in defiance against the United States, President James Buchanan sent U.S. forces to squash the quote-unquote rebellion. Though church members harbored a general antipathy toward the U.S. government, which they viewed as having done literally nothing as they had been persecuted and driven from at least two states for their religion, there was, in actuality, no real rebellion. In fact, another name for this whole episode is Buchanan's Blunder. But upon hearing that the U.S. Army was coming, the Mormons in Utah prepared for the worst, including being prepared to destroy their homes and flee yet again. Young in particular was defiant and indignant at the situation, declaring martial law and calling back men from missions to help resist the approach of the army. The counsel from church leaders was also to not supply any provisions to the army or others who might be crossing the territory out of fear of indirectly or accidentally supplying their enemies. And I will note that another wrinkle to all this is that for the past couple of years, the church had been going through what is now termed the Mormon Reformation. Young and other church leaders had grown concerned that people had gotten so caught up in the fight for survival in their new frontier homes that they were forgetting their religious duties. This led to rounds of fire and brimstone, repenty, repenty type sermons That utilized a lot of Old Testament imagery and language, and came down especially hard on those who had dissented from or were opposed to the church. And this, unfortunately, is where the Baker-Fancher party comes in. This California-bound wagon train, full of men, women, and children mainly from Arkansas, had the misfortune of crossing through Utah during this period of high tension. Now They did cross paths with Jacob Hamlin, heading up to Salt Lake, who directed them towards a spot in southwest Utah known as Mountain Meadows that had good pasture land for their animals. However, as they traveled, they grew enraged as people would not sell them supplies, or would only do so at exorbitant prices. And they did themselves no favor when, according to which source you are reading, some men claimed that they either had a gun that had helped kill Joseph Smith, or had participated in a brutal massacre of Mormons at a spot in Missouri known as Hans Mill. Sprinkle in the fact that Mormon Apostle Parley P. Pratt had recently been killed in Arkansas, something the eastern press seemed to actually be pleased about, and what you have is a giant recipe for disaster. That disaster came when tempers flared and Mormon militia, with Lee's help, convinced the local Paiutes to attack the wagon train. On September 7th, 1857, the Paiutes and militia members disguised as Paiutes attacked the train, which turned into a siege as the party literally circled their wagons. It appeared that at one point the militia were certain that someone knew that white men were involved, so their plan to blame everything on the Paiutes was ruined unless everyone old enough to testify was wiped out. So, Lee rode into the party's camp under a white flag, claiming to have made peace with the Paiutes, and that he and his men would guide the embattled party back to safety in Cedar City. Instead, once they got the wagon train moving, at a signal from Lee, the militia turned their guns on the wagon train and killed more than 120 people, leaving alive only 18 children who were too young to be able to testify. Because of the Civil War, The investigation into the massacre was pushed back by a good decade, by which time John D. Lee had fled Utah to his ferry, though I've seen one source say that he was actually sent there by Young because he was an uncomfortable reminder of what had happened, in addition to being a liability. After being arrested in 1874, Lee would be put on trial twice. The first resulted in a hung jury in 1875, possibly because the prosecution tried to argue that Young had been involved in the plot, something modern historians agree is not true, though he had unwittingly contributed to the atmosphere of tension at the time. In 1876, Lee was put on trial again. I don't know enough about this trial to know how they got around the double jeopardy clause in the Bill of Rights, but Lee was eventually found guilty. On March 23, 1877, He was executed by firing squad at Mountain Meadows, the only man ever punished for the massacre. His final words implied that he was being sacrificed by cowards who had put him up to it, and that he was nothing more than a scapegoat, though from all I read it appears that he was deeply involved in the plot from the beginning. Interestingly enough though, in 1961, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually posthumously reinstated Lee's membership at the behest of his descendants. Following Lee's death, one of his wives, Emma, took over running the ferry. She would oversee it for the next five years, despite being a single woman with only her children and hostile Amerindians within a hundred miles of her. An oft-told story has a group of Navajo deciding to camp in her front yard once, and so Emma, just to show that she didn't fear them, gathered up her children and blankets, and they slept out in the yard around the Navajo's campfire. The next morning, the Navajo leader declared her the bravest woman he had ever met, and promised that she would have nothing to fear from his people from then on out. In the late 1870s, the church would actually buy the ferry rights from Emma and would continue to operate it for decades to come. The importance of this strategic crossing of the Colorado cannot be overstated. As I mentioned, it was the only easily accessible crossing point for like 100 miles in each direction. It became a necessary destination for anyone traveling north or south in the area and all future Mormon immigrations to northern Arizona which we will talk about more next week, would pass through Lee's Ferry. Even as the wagon gave way to the automobile, the only way to pass through the area was a road that went through Marble Canyon at Lee's Ferry. And it wouldn't be until the Navajo Bridge was completed in 1929 that a bypass for the ferry was finally in place. Fun fact, the celebration of that bridge was attended by Heber J. Grant, then President of the Mormon Church, and it was christened with a bottle of ginger ale because Prohibition was in effect at the time. With that amusing little anecdote, I'm going to leave things here for this week. But join me next week as we watch further Mormon colonizations happen across Arizona. Sometimes they will flourish, and often they didn't. But one thing was certain. These Mormon pioneers were bound and determined with a vision from God himself to make Arizona their I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.